Well, I've got to tell you, this is a, a little bit of a surreal experience to be with you this morning. I will not be able to use words well enough to tell you what a joy it is to be back with you and to be up here instead of about right there where the guy in the green shirt is. That's usually where I sat, was back there, just a few rows up from the back when I was here. I didn't get too close because you never know what was going to happen or what was going to take place. <laughs> let alone be on the stage, right? So it's pretty amazing. My name is Richard Shaw. My wife Karen is here, as has already been mentioned. And uh, you've uh, got some material uh, in the, the, the folder that you got. You heard a little bit from people on the stage. But I, I, I just, I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be with you. Thank you to Dr. Toddy Holman. Thank you to the full faculty of the Counseling and Pastoral Care Department. I've been treated just wonderfully to come back and be with you for a few days this week and to be on the campus after 25 years. Some things have changed and some things are exactly the way they were when I left uh, in 1991 uh, with a master's degree in counseling. And uh, I, I am living proof, just in case you ever have doubts, that there is life after seminary. Okay? <laughs> I guarantee it. Again, on some of those Tuesdays when I was sitting back in the back and wondering about what I was doing and where I was going and what God might have had in store and if there was life after graduation and all that comes forward, I can't believe that this year, it's been 25 years since I graduated from Asbury, and I can't believe all the opportunities that God has blessed me with in the last years to be able to continue mostly to talk about the topic that we're gonna talk a little bit about today. The only extra little piece of introduction I wanna add for us is something I say literally every time I'm standing in front of any kind of crowd, um, is that I'm originally from Napanee, Nebraska, population 160. Yeah, exactly, right? Whoa. So I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty sure there's more than 160 in the room this morning. Right? That was the size of town that I grew up in, uh, in small town Nebraska. And I'm thankful as I continue through uh, some opportunities with uh, my undergrad and, and with the Nazarene and Wesleyan churches that a minister told me about Asbury Theological Seminary when I got to the point of looking at my training and what God might have in store for me in the future. He recommended that I come to this little town, a little bigger than Napanee, but not a lot. Uh, in Kentucky, and the three years that Karen and I spent here uh, to this day impact who we are and how we go about our ministry and our lives uh, in significant ways. Um, hard to believe, I'm going to paint a picture for you. Uh, it was the fall of uh, 1988. My wife and I had been married less than a month. We packed up everything we owned and jumped in a 1984 red Pontiac Fiero and left for Wilmore, Kentucky and spent three years. I, I did the master's uh, in counseling program. It was a two-year program. I squeezed it into three years successfully. So we spent three years here while most of my friends did their MDiv program. I did the counseling program. I believe I graduated in the first year in 1991 that they had graduates from that program. 
And when I came, um, I was kindly suggested, told to take the MDiv program because nobody really knew if that counseling degree was going to last, if it was going to stick around. They didn't know if it was going to get you anywhere. Are you going to be able to get a license? Are you going to be able to practice with it? Will it get you into a doctorate program? So I was an MDiv student for a week. <laughs> I went to... Greek 101. <laughs> and you might not believe me if, if I wasn't a pastor, but this is the actual Greek New Testament that I purchased for that course over 25 years ago. I kid you not. We went to the first day of class, and coming from a state college where I did psychology and sociology and never had one moment of Greek or Hebrew in my life, God bless you for doing Greek and Hebrew, right? You are a better man and woman than I. I went to the first day of beginning 101 Greek. The professor, I'm sure, a nice man, had us set in a circle and read from Matthew, verse by verse, on day one of class. It came to me and I said, it's all Greek to me. <laughs> and no one laughed. I knew I was in a lot of trouble. That day, God spoke to me in English. And he said, remember that counseling program that I wanted you to go to and take a chance on? And well, trust me, because I've got some things in store for you. Go find your advisor and sign up for that counseling program and never look back. And that's what I did. And as you may know, there's no Hebrew or Greek requirements in the counseling program. And so three years later, Karen and I left here, went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, Wilmore to L.A., okay, little different. Awesome experience, though, in Southern California, where I got a chance to continue my studies and end up with another degree that's a little bit unique, a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. They kind of told me the same thing. It's a clinical doctorate. We don't quite know what it's going to do, but we think it's going to be okay. Trust us and trust God. And four years later, I left there. And because of people like Dr. Fred Van Tatenhove, Dr. David Siemens, I got my first job and my only real job as a professor at George Fox University, a small Asbury wannabe in the Northwest in Portland, Oregon. And I've been there ever since. Uh, 22 years there. So coming back to Asbury is such a joy and pleasure and a surreal experience. Thank you for having my wife and I and letting us be with you. Um, and I certainly hope that something that we have to share with you today will make some kind of difference in your life. I want to talk for a, just a few minutes with you about this idea of shame. Because when I was here, Dr. David Siemens introduced me to the term of shame and I had no idea I'd end up writing my doctoral dissertation on shame and grace. I had no idea that the first time I offered an elective at George Fox on that course, it would be so well received that it would become a required course as a part of all our counseling students at George Fox University. I had no idea that I'd be invited back here 25 years later to still be talking about a term that started out as something very meaningful for me but I had no idea it would become the cornerstone of the ministry that God had in store for me. So let me share just a couple of those thoughts with you today 
and hope that there's something in there that will be helpful. But a moment of levity as we start. I came across an article called, Boy, Am I Embarrassed? And here's the point. Embarrassment, guilt, and shame are all connected to each other. They're related to each other, and yet they're quite different. But let's start with a little bit on embarrassment. Mark Twain once said that man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. Embarrassment is an emotion of which no one is immune. And while there are no reported deaths, many people caught in the unblinking eye of a mortifying moment have often wished for a quick and merciful end. Take, for example, the very proper British career diplomat who stood to give a speech. He noticed that his fly was open. He quickly sat back down and yanked the zipper shut, but in doing so, he jammed his silk tie between the steel teeth of his zipper. When he stood back up, he tightened his own tie around his neck. He began making gasping and wheezing noises. People thought he was having a heart attack. Eventually, somebody figured out what was going on, grabbed a knife, and cut the tie in half. But by now, all eyes were transfixed on the scene. Thoroughly flustered, the diplomat ran from the room with a stubby piece of dangling tie hanging from his fly and the rest hanging from his neck. Within hours, the entire diplomatic community heard the tie in zipper story. From that point on, wherever he was on official business, people would just gaze down at his fly and chuckle. He was eventually recalled home where he waited for the memory of the gaff to fade. Sources of embarrassment are everywhere. Open flies are notorious. Speakers lose their places in important speeches. Food becomes attached to our smiles. Toilet paper trail from our shoes. Our dentures slip. Our toupees slide. Our tongues constantly betray us. In everyday life, we are embarrassed anytime we look foolish or stupid or incompetent in public. And even the fear of being embarrassed is powerful. Research suggests that to be embarrassed, to blush, to turn red, basically there are four quick things that have to happen. First, you have to make a mistake. You have to fail at something. You have to blow it in some way. Second, it has to happen very quickly, very suddenly, thus not giving you a chance to change it back and do something different. So you blow it in some way. It happens very quickly. Third, it has to happen in front of other people. Public plays a role in embarrassment. And lastly, and most importantly, you have to care about the opinion of the public. So when you blow it, when it happens fast, when there's nothing you can do about it, it happens in front of other people and you care what they think, the opportunity is ripe for embarrassment. Now, you guys are seminary students. You take lots of tests. So here's your first test. Right now, who is at the greatest of opportunities to be embarrassed? That's right. That would be me. Okay, in case you didn't notice... I'm an extrovert, I talk kind of fast, and that's, that, that means that sometimes when I put stuff out here, it hasn't always processed all the time through here before it comes out here. I, I, thank you, I have some fellow extroverts in the room. When that happens, it's too late to pull it back and change it in some way, and you are my public this morning, and even though I don't know hardly any of you in the room, this is kind of interesting, of course it matters to me what you think of me and the message that I'm sharing with you. Even when we don't know people, 
They matter to us because I want you to leave in a few minutes saying it was worth being in chapel this morning. Something that was here and happened. Even before I got here, thank you to everyone who's been a part this morning. What a beautiful service. We want you to know that something happened because you gave up some time to be here and connect with the God of the universe. Does that make sense? Okay, one other piece of that article that was fascinating. I love this. Some real researchers set up a pyramid of toilet paper in like a Walmart, a superstore, right? Big pyramid of toilet paper, but they rigged it so that when somebody would take a package of toilet paper off of the pyramid, the entire pyramid would come crashing down. Then they interviewed the people who knocked over the pyramids of toilet paper to see how they were thinking and feeling. And then they interviewed the people who were walking by, the public, to see what their take was on this circumstance. Now, I wish I was a better researcher, but that is some research I could get behind, okay? Are you with me? That sounds like exciting research. Here's what's fascinating about that. Here's the cut to the chase piece of that research. What they found was the way that we feel about ourselves when we blow it and the way that public feels about us when we blow it couldn't be more different. I can be my own worst enemy when I blow it in some way. I will beat myself up for something that I should have known or should have done, but routinely the response of public is empathy and care and understanding, and a little bit of, thank God it wasn't me, but mostly <laughs> empathy. So here's the first piece of that. Sometimes the way we think and feel about ourselves on the inside is so different when we allow people around us in community to speak into our lives and to offer that care for us. So the match between those two, we believe, we perceive that you feel and think the same way about us as that we do. And if you really knew me and what was on the inside, I wouldn't be good enough, you wouldn't like me, I wouldn't make a difference, and often that's not the case. Now that's just embarrassment. That's the fun one. That's the easy one. We all relate to being embarrassed. We've all done things or had friends who have done things where blushing and embarrassment took a place. But let's add two more, more important terms to this. How about guilt? Guilt is that thing when we do something wrong that helps us set it right. Guilt is about making amends. Guilt is about asking for forgiveness. Guilt is about taking responsibility for things that we've done wrong. Guilt is about our behaviors. And we can learn to change and we can learn to correct those. And we allow our conscience and God and others to speak truth into our lives. And that's what changes us and helps us to become a better person. But guilt isn't about my character. That's shame. When we wrestle with shame, it becomes our ultimate brokenness. This thing in us that I can't fix on my own. We're no longer talking about being embarrassed and turning red. We're no longer talking about my conscience that corrects me and moves me forward deeper. We're talking about something that is our ultimate brokenness, never being able to measure up, never being good enough, never perfect enough, never wise enough, never good enough grace. 
never allowing for love and acceptance and grace and connection to overpower those places of how we might think and feel about ourselves. Shame blocks our interpersonal relationships. It cuts off intimacy. It separates us from others and ultimately from God. Shame is always believing that I have to earn right relationship. I have to work for relationship. Shame is an ever-escalating ladder that always has just one more rung on it. Shame is a lie from the devil telling us we are never enough. And it is not what Christ tells us today. You heard the scripture that was read for us from Hebrews 12, 5 to 13. And so because I know that the time is going to go quickly here, I'm going to ask you as you reflect on that, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things out of that, make a couple of points, and then we're going to call it a morning. But I love this picture that's relational, and this is a parenting and caring picture that talks to us about how God relates to us and thinks of us as his dear children. I want you to keep that in mind, and I'm just going to highlight the very end of that, because every time I share on this particular scripture, um, I never know exactly who's in the audience, and I never know what God's doing in your heart in these moments, but I've found over the years that literally these last verses often are the most potent for people in the room. So, Take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Maybe there's somebody here today and maybe the person to your left or to your right doesn't even know just how much your hands are tired and just how much it's all you can do to stand on your legs right now the burdens that you're carrying, the inside struggles that you wrestle with between you and others, between you and God, you haven't even let other people that are the closest to you in your world into those places. And I'm here to tell you that God is here to support you and help you and make that grip new and strong and to firm up your shaky legs. And then what follows is mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble, but will become strong. The first point is that we need to embrace God's training. Embrace God's training. You are here being trained in so many ways already on purpose. You're here to have your mind trained. You're here to have your heart trained. And you're here to have your hands trained. Because those are the three things that we work out of. Our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Our thinking, our cognitions. You, you spend a lot of time in a place like that working on this. I know at this place. Your hearts, understanding your feelings, what God has done and given you inside deep connecting with people relationally with others, and then your hands, the hands of God, practically, to be involved and make a difference in other people's lives. So first, as you reflect on this scripture, I want you to think about embracing God's training. We need to learn how to trust 
God because when we're being trained and when we're, we've been hurt and when shame has been a part of our life, one of the hardest things for us to do is to trust someone else. You know who I trust in? I trust in me. It's hard for me to trust you and it's hard for me at times to trust God. Number one, embrace God's training in your life so that you can learn what it means to trust. The second item I want you to keep in mind is to take a new grip, stand firm, and then get a moving. Take a new grip, grip, stand firm, and then get a moving. Hold on to God. I promise you, he's holding on to you. Because it's not just about you, it's in relationships and it's a part of community. And we do this work and God does a work in us, but it's not just for us. God does a work in you for you and then he does it in you to give away to somebody else. When I first came to Asbury and when I was introduced to the ideas of shame and grace, it was a language and words that made sense for me in my own life and my own background and my own family and I assumed that it was just a work for me, something that God was doing in me, and I was thankful for that, and it made sense, and it, it, it released things in me in new ways that nothing else had before, and to think that that was going to become something of a topic and of research, and for 25 years of work is unbelievable. What is God speaking to you about right now in this program at this time in your life? What's making sense to you? Where is he loosing things in you? Where is he freeing places? Where is he bringing relief and freedom? That work is for you, but it's not just for you. It's to give away now and in the future to those that he's going to lead you to. The last time I looked at some stats, these could have shifted since the last time, but the last time I looked at some stats, I saw that in the U.S. adult population, 10% have earned a master's degree. And 1% of the U.S. adult population has an earned doctorate. Look around. This is a group of leaders and future leaders of communities and cities and states and in our world. The work God is doing in you is for you, and it's to give it away to those that he's going to bring you to. This was drove home for me with my children. I've got a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, and a few years back, they were learning to drive. If any of you have been through this experience, it's kind of a nervous experience to let your 15- and 16-year-old kids be at the wheel of a car that can do some real damage to them and others, Right? Well, the thing that was the hardest was realizing they were copying my driving skills. <laughs> that is very humbling. I was reminded of being a leader and of how they're watching me and doing the things that I did. So not only did I have to correct them, I had to correct my driving as they were learning to do that. Maybe that's a little bit what God's doing in our lives. He's doing correction in us while we see how that plays out. Third point. Live beyond brokenness by putting your hope in Jesus Christ. We can live beyond the brokenness of shame because our ultimate hope 
is in Christ. Make no mistake, you cannot do this on your own. We all need the power of Jesus Christ living deeply inside of us, giving us hope, giving us grace, giving us faith if we're going to overcome the brokenness of this world. It's always amazing to me that that Christ uses the very places of our greatest brokenness as the cornerstone of his ministry through us. There is no offense, no brokenness that is beyond the help and healing of Christ. We do our part, and God does his, and healing comes. You're probably familiar with Rick Warren, the senior pastor of Saddleback Community Church in Southern California. He's author of The Purpose Driven Life. He had a church that started in his home in 1980 and now has grown to over 20,000 members. This story went out just a couple of years ago, but I want to share it with you in case you hadn't heard about it. Saddleback Community Church Pastor Rick Warren received an outpouring of support from Christians around the world on Easter Sunday. This marked the second anniversary of his youngest son's death. Believers took to social networking sites to share heartfelt messages of love and hope for Pastor Warren, who requested prayer on April 1st via his Facebook page as he prepared to preach Easter services for four days straight. The post garnered more than 39,000 likes and hundreds of comments. Rick Warren's son, Matthew, who was 27 when he died, took his own life on April 5th, 2013, after a long battle with depression. In an emotional prayer request to his one million Facebook followers, the Purpose Driven Life author recalled his son's passing as the worst day of his life. On this Easter week, he says, two years ago, my son Matthew ended his life and his 27-year battle with mental illness. That day, April 5th, coming five days after Easter, was the worst day of my life. On a day where everything in me wants to be quiet and low-key and alone at home with my Lord and my wife, all I can do is get through the day. I'll be leading multiple Easter services on the biggest Christian day of the year. Although Matthew's death anniversary fell on Resurrection Sunday this year, the Southern California pastor celebrated Easter with his church because, as he explained, the resurrection is the unmovable hope that is steadfast and soothes and comforts the loss in my heart. Later, speaking at a pastor's conference in Baltimore, Maryland, Warren said that Matthew spent much of his time helping other people and after his death, he said, I received some 30 to 35,000 letters of condolences from people around the world, including rock stars and prime ministers and even presidents. But the letters that meant the most to me were the letters from people that Matthew had led to Christ. And they said this, I'm going to heaven because of your son. After reading those letters, Rick Warren said that he realized in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. In God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And this made me think, 
maybe we're all just broken trees bearing fruit because of the hope and grace of Jesus Christ. Kurt Bubna says in Perfectly Imperfect, it's the messed up that discover God in the middle of the mess. It's the weak that find strength in God. It's the sinful that recognize their need for God. It's the sick who realize they need help. It's the humble who forgive because they have already been forgiven. Maybe God expects you and me to struggle more than we do. Maybe he's not so surprised by the struggles of our sin and shame. Maybe we're the ones that are so surprised at that. So, Asbury, take a new grip with your tired hands. Stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. And then those who follow you, though they may be weak or lame, will not stumble and they will become strong. God is near, he cares, and he can help. Through God's grace, you can live a life with shame no more. Let's pray. Father God, you are present with us here today. Thank you for that, and thank you that Jesus died for our sins, to break through the sin and shame in our life, and thank you that this place and these people know that truth deeply. Help it to be re-understood in new and deeper ways for every one of us today, and then help us to proclaim the grace and hope and love and acceptance of Jesus Christ literally around the globe. In your name. Amen.